We're going to be looking at um, only a few verses. I don't know why it takes me so long. We're going to be looking at verses 48 to 59, finishing up the Light of the World sermon. And the name of our lesson is the True Emancipation Proclamation, Part 2. And uh, that's lesson number 92 in your books. All right, if you'd bow with me, Father, we thank you for this day you have given to us. Thank you for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, who truly is the emancipator, the one who sets us free. Thank you that of him and through him and to him are all things. And we pray now that he would be lifted up and magnified in this lesson this morning. For we pray in his blessed name. Amen. We ended our lesson last time with Jesus having told the Jews with whom he had been dialoguing ever since verse 31, if you look back at 31 of chapter 8, John chapter 8, that uh, they could not hear him because they were not of God. Verse 47, he had said that. That was our last verse we looked at last time. He said, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not. Why? Because ye are not of God. And that, of course, infuriated them. If anyone prided themselves on knowing God, it was the Jews. This was probably a group of Pharisees and scribes. They were infuriated. That infuriated them, as did the fact that none of them, when he had challenged them in verse 46, not one of them could name a single genuine sin in either his life or in his character, other than that he broke their rules about the Sabbath and that he was a blasphemer. And, of course, we know he truly was not a blasphemer because he was who he claimed to be. Actually, his two questions, if you look at verse 46, he asked two questions. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? We could put those two questions together, blend them into one question, which would be in effect, since I speak the truth which is backed up, which is supported by my impeccable life, then why do you not believe me? And that is when, of course, he went on to tell them that they didn't hear his words, they didn't believe his words because they were not of God. Now, as we pick up with today's lesson, we're going to look at the Jews' response to what the Lord had said in verses 42 to 47. And we're going to find that the best they could manage to do was to resort once again to their, their old trick of name-calling. And that really indicates, you know, when somebody has to resort to name-calling, if they're in a debate, as we've seen a lot lately, if they resort to name-calling, that usually means they've already lost the battle because they don't have enough support, you know, they run short on support for their defense, or they don't have enough uh, information on facts or evidences, so they resort to name-calling. It's pretty immature when somebody has to do that. We're going to see not only do they resort to name-calling, but by the end of this chapter, they resort to stone-throwing. It's a pretty sad crowd. Well, as we consider what the Lord had to say about having true emancipation or true freedom from eternal separation, in other words, to be set free from ever having to experience eternal separation from God. We're going to be looking at three outline divisions. You see them in, in your book. We're going to look, first of all, at the Jews' charge and Jesus' response to that charge in verses 48 to 51. Then we're going to look at their challenge, the Jews' challenge, challenge and Abraham's rejoicing 
That's going to be my favorite part. That's the longest part of this lesson, verses 52 to 58. And then we're going to look at the Jews' choice and Jesus' removal in that last verse, which wraps up this whole very long chapter. We've been in this chapter a long time. And that'll wrap up chapter 8 when we look at verse 59. So let's begin by looking at the Jews' charge and Jesus' response. And for this, look with me at verses 48 to 51. After he had said that they were not of God, that's why they didn't hear him, they answered him in verse 48 and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. One that seeketh my glory is what he means there. There's one that seeketh my glory and judgeth. Verily, verily, or of a truth of a truth, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. He's claiming there lordship over the tomb. Later on in this passage, he'll claim lordship over time when he says, before Abraham was, I am. All right, so we see here that the best response the dark, depraved minds of the Jews could come up with to answer Jesus' invitation to name some sin in his life, the best they could do was to call him a Samaritan. And they're proud of that because they say, say we not well that thou art a Samaritan. And then they added, which we're going to talk about after we talk, first of all, about their slur to being a Samaritan. They added, and hast a devil. You see, this was their way of telling him how much they disdained him, how much they disliked him, how much they hated him, as if he didn't know. And he already told them back in, what was it, verse 40, that he knew they wanted to kill him. He knew how much they disdained him. But uh, so by calling him a Samaritan, they're just showing their disdain for him. They probably apparently knew that the last time he had come from Galilee down to Jerusalem in Judea, that he had passed through Samaria. Now, a pious Jew wouldn't do that, especially one who was, you know, like them, a scribe or a Pharisee or someone who called himself a master teacher, especially someone who was claiming to be the Messiah, certainly would not pass through Samaria. They would make this huge detour to avoid going through Samaria. But the last time, back in John chapter 4, what did he do? Passed right through. It even said he must needs pass through Samaria. Why? Because he had a divine appointment with a certain woman, a Samaritan woman, there outside the village of Sychar at Jacob's well. And maybe they had also even heard, because they always had, I'm sure, spies out trying to find out everything they could about Jesus, that, they, that he had just also recently passed through Samaria when he had left Galilee and come down to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, he would have stayed with another village of Samaritans, except they said, we don't want you here. And that's when James and John got upset and wanted to call down fire from heaven. Well, since no self-respecting Jew would do such a thing as stay, number one, pass through Samaria, number two, actually sleep in a Samaritan village, stay in a Samaritan's home, eat with Samaritans, mingle with Samaritans, and even, you know, witness to them, uh, they called him a Samaritan. The Samaritans, remember, were part Jewish, and they were part Gentile. 
they uh, were the, when when Assyria came from the north and took the ten northern tribes of Israel away. They the Assyrians left some of the poorest Jewish people in the land in order to till the fields. And then what the Assyrians would do is they would amalgamate the, the people they conquered. So they would send others, un, other captive people or other Assyrians down into the northern part of Israel to intermarry with those Jews who were left behind. And that's where the Samaritan people came from, was um, a mixture of Jews and Assyrians. They're part Jewish and part Gentile. So according to the Jews, these Samaritans had been born of fornication because a Jew was only supposed to marry another Jew and these were, these were intermarried with the, um, the Gentiles. So, so this was just another way that they were really insulting the Lord's conception. They were saying, ah, you're part Jewish and part Gentile. You know, there was a rumor that, yes, his mother was Jewish, but his father was not. His father, some people said, of course, is totally tr false. We know who his true father was God. But some said that his father was a Roman because there was a Roman garrison there near Nazareth. Well, as you probably know, there was an, a long, ongoing hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, which was why the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well was so shocked when Jesus spoke to her. Number one, she was shocked because he, a man, was speaking to her, a woman, in a public setting. Um, but number two, she was shocked because he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. And she said in John 4, 9, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. But why did he speak to her? Because he was a barrier breaker. Not only did he break through the sex barrier, and aren't we glad for that? You know where we could be if it wasn't for Jesus? He was a barrier breaker. He broke through the sex barrier. He broke through the social barrier. She was a bad woman, and he was the good person, the good man who's ever been, the best, the good one. Uh, he broke through the, the, um, the racial barrier. He was a Jew, she was a Samaritan. But the best news of all is that he broke through the sin barrier, right? I'm glad for that one. I'm glad for all of them. The common hatred of the Jews toward the Samaritans was fueled even further by the fact that the Samaritans, I never knew this before, but I guess I did last time, but I'd forgotten about it, that the Samaritans claimed that they were the true sons of Abraham. Amazing how they could do that, but people can do whatever they want, I guess. <laughs> they claimed to be the tr true sons of Abraham, and they accused the Jews of being the descendants of Cain. And they said they, you know, Cain was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. He's the one who killed his brother Abel. And they said that they were the descendants of righteous Seth, who Adam and Eve had to, you know, replaced Abel. In fact, there was a Samaritan legend that said Cain was the, um, the offspring of Satan's seduction of Eve. Now, that's totally false, but this was a legend that the Samaritans developed. So, in, in learning all this, we find another reason for why the Jews, in John chapter 8 here, called Jesus a Samaritan. Remember, he had just told them in verse 44 that they were of their father who? The devil. 
So when they hear that, they think, oh, you sound like a Samaritan because the Samaritans are the ones who say we are the descendants of Cain, who was the offspring of Satan and Eve. Now, Cain was the natural offspring of Adam and Eve. He was a spiritual child of Satan, but he wasn't the physical child of Satan and Eve. That's absolutely ridiculous. But we do see here another reason why they called him a Samaritan. Well, it's significant to notice that in the Lord's response back to the Jews, which is found in verses 49 to 51, um, he didn't even bother to answer the Samaritan charge when they said thou art a Samaritan. Although they meant evil in calling him a Samaritan, yet you know what it was? It was nothing more than a racial slur. And there, he wouldn't even honor it by responding to it. There is nothing evil at all in being born a, a Jew or a Samaritan. Just as there's nothing evil in being born of any nationality. Did you, did you know that there are people all over this world who hate us just because of the fact that we're born Americans? They hate Americans? Yes, and Americans hate other people. It's all wrong. It's all evil. There is nothing evil, however, in being born of a certain nationality. There's nothing evil in being born male or female, nothing evil in being born of any race or any uh, social status, etc. It was only, now of course that isn't to say, the equal basis is that we're all born in sin, but it's not a sin to be born a particular whatever. It was only the evil prejudice in the minds and in the hearts of the Jews toward the Samaritans that made the term Samaritan derogatory. So he ignored what they said to him about being a Samaritan. However, he did take issue with the fact that they had gone on to say, thou hast a devil. It was important that he refute that comment. Why? Because he's sinless. And if you are possessed by a demon, that means... Somewhere along the line, you have sinned and opened yourself up to demon possession. So he had to respond to that. And so he said, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. If in these names, this name-calling of the Jews, if they had hoped in any way to try to get Jesus to display anger, you know, to flare up at them and... Um, and just lash out at them and display sin of some kind, which is what they're all about. Even though they believe him mentally, as we know from verse 31, they did believe him. They're not interested in the facts. They're out to get him. They're out to get him to, to trip up in some way so that they can discredit him publicly and then do away with him. So they want to get him upset here. But if they had hoped to do that, they were once again very sadly mistaken because in divine, majestic dignity, he answered them very calmly. This is what we need to remember. When somebody slurs us or slanders us or says ugly things about us, just remember how Jesus responded. I can just hear him very calmly. I have not a devil, but I honor my father and ye do dishonor me. Isn't that beautiful? He, wasn't, he, he was sinless, so he wasn't going to display any uh, any sin in his response he merely denied the charge his ministry was sanctified he said i honor my father and his ministry was selfless 
I seek not mine own glory, he said. You know, they had said he had a devil, okay? They're accusing him of being demon-possessed. If a person who is controlled by the devil, and uh, or I should say a person who is controlled by a devil, the devil, or by one of his demons, would that person seek to honor and glorify God the Father? Would a demon-possessed person try to honor God? No. Would one who is controlled by Satan attempt um, to tell these men of prominence the truth about themselves? How many times has Jesus said, ye shall die in your sins if you don't believe me? No. One who was controlled by a demon would try to flatter these men of prominence and appease them so that they, in turn, would turn around and honor him. You know, if he had flattered them and stroked them the right way, they might have made him their king. You know, people up in Galilee had already tried to make him king, but he wasn't interested in the kind of king they wanted. They wanted a physical deliverer. He was a spiritual deliverer. One who is a servant to the devil would be inflated by his own ego and by his own pride, and he would seek honor and glory for himself. But Jesus only sought to honor and glorify his Father. If he had sought his own glory would have lied in order to flatter these men, these, these powerful, prominent men. But he wasn't worried at all about building up his own, his own um, honor, his own glory. He wasn't interested in that. There is one, he said, look at the end of verse 50, there is one who he could trust totally who would look after his honor. There was one, his father, who he could trust to um, look after his reputation. He said, there is one that seeketh and implied is my glory. I don't seek my glory, but there is one that seeks my glory and who judges. They could, the Jews could dishonor him, Jesus, as much as they wanted because he sought no glory for himself. Uh, but there was one who was interested in his glory and he could totally put his trust in him and he's warning the Jews you should be warned that this same one who is seeking my glory who is interested in my reputation is the one that judges that's serious you see they were presuming to sit in judgment of and to dishonor the very one God sought to honor and that's dangerous Remember last time he had been in Jerusalem, back in John chapter 5, he had said to them, he that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father. You know, if you want to show honor to a father, like if you wanted to honor my husband, Frank, you wouldn't go and dishonor my son, Chris, right? You don't, dis you don't honor the father by dishonoring the son. Well, we note that the ministry of the Lord Jesus was not only sanctified, he said, I honor my Father, and selfless when he said, I seek not mine own glory, but it was also very shocking. He shocked his listeners a lot, didn't he? And he's going to really shock them in this, the rest of this Light of the World sermon, but look at verse 51. He goes on to say something that once again would have really shocked his listeners. He says, verily, verily, which we all know is of a truth, of a truth, this is very important, listen up, he says verily, verily, three times in this sermon, if a man keeps or obeys with diligence, or go back to verse 31, if a man continues in, surrenders to my saying, which is the Greek word logos, 
If he continues in, keeps, obeys my word, he shall what? Never see death. Ever patient, ever loving, ever truthful, the Lord Jesus, not for his own sake, but for the sake of those to whom he was speaking, invited these very men who had just so maliciously insulted and blasphemed him to um, trust his word. This is an invitation to them. He's inviting them to trust his word and therefore be emancipated from the eternal doom of death. They could be set free from ever having to experience eternal separation from God. Already twice in this sermon, he had told them, ye shall die in your sins if you don't trust my words. And now he's inviting them, you don't have to die in your sins. You can trust my word and never see death. Now, I wish you could see this verse in the Greek because it's all turned around. And, um, and, the, and the first word in the sentence is death, thanaton. And when a word in the Greek is put first in a sentence, it emphasizes it. So the emphasis here is death you will never have to see. Also in the Greek, we don't see in the English, there is a double negative used in this, in this sentence. Now, a double negative in the, right, Joan, in the English, if I said, I ain't got no baloney, <laughs> I'd be Southern. I'd be incorrect, <laughs> whether I'm Northern or Southern. I ain't got no cabbage. That means I do have cabbage. If I ain't got no, means I do have some. So in the English, two, neg two negatives make a positive, but in the Greek, two negatives make an emphasized negative. You know, the Greeks have everything backwards. <laughs> so what this sentence literally reads is this, death of a truth, of a truth, I say unto you, if a man obeys with diligence my word, he will never, no, never see. It's emphasized. Isn't that neat? Never, no, never, like never, know in any wise, see. Jesus had just pointed out the fearful consequences of rejecting him and rejecting his words in verse 50, when he said, there is one that seeketh and judgeth. There would be one, the Father, who would judge them for their disbelief and their dishonor of the Son. And yet in his very next breath, he is giving them a promise, an invitational promise that stands in blessed contrast from the horrible, inevitable doom that awaits those in, word, in, in who his word has no place. He promised that those who do keep his word who let it govern their lives, who submit to it, that they will never, no, never experience God's judgment of the second death, eternal separation from God. And that's, that's a wonderful promise. You know, death is not extinction, as some people think. My great-grandmother said, when, when you die, you die, that's it. You go back to the dust of the earth and it's over. It's extinction. Death is not extinction. Death is merely separation. Death is temporary separation of the body from the soul. Temporary, because even unbelievers get a body back one day, their body back. And it's um, temporary separation 
from a man, a woman, boy, girl, from the rest of living people, temporary. But it also can be permanent separation of man from God. But for the believer, it isn't any separation ever from, yes, it might be temporary separation of our body from our soul and temporary separation of us from others, uh, you know, left here on earth. But for the believer, there is absolutely no separation from God. Paul said, absent from the body, instantly in the presence of the Lord. You know, he also wrote in Romans 8:39, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So, if death separated us from God, from his love, for even a second, a minute, a year, ten years, hundred years, thousand years, that verse wouldn't be true, because nothing can separate us from the love of God. So, one minute we're in this world on our deathbed perhaps looking in the faces of those gathered around us close our eyes next second we open them just in a twinkling of an eye just like as fast as the rapture at death we open our eyes and you know what we see we don't see death didn't he say if a man keep my saying he shall never know never see death you don't see death if you're a believer you see jesus absent from the body present with the Lord. Isn't that exciting? We don't know. You're ready to get a busload right now. <laughs> so, and you know, the reason why the believer never has to see death or taste death, because Jesus tasted it for us. Yes, he was separated from God on the cross. That's why he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? He did taste death. He did see death. He did it for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news, isn't it? Death is not to be feared. I fear the death process more than I fear death. You know, Jesus called death an exodus when he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's, an, it's just an, you're like going through a door from this life to the next. So the Lord was offering these Jews a way of escape from paying the wages of sin, which is eternal separation from God, who they claimed they knew so well, but they didn't know at all. And what do you think was their response to this very generous invitation? After they had just insulted him, he gives them a wonderful invitation, and how do you think they responded? Since they did mentally believe him already, we know that. Don't forget that. These are the same Jews who we were told in verse 31 believed him. They didn't believe surrender. They didn't believe in their hearts. They believed mentally. Well, now after hearing this invitation to avoid death, did they surrender their hearts to him as well? I wish they had, but they didn't. They went on to demonstrate that they did not continue in his word. They had no place in their hearts for his word. They did not understand his word. They did not hear his word, and they certainly had no intention of keeping his word. His great life-saving invitational statement here only provo provoked them to further anger and to casting more insults at him. They reacted like drowning people react when the lifesaver comes out to save them. Have you ever been drowning, any of you? Christy, I, I was too. I was drowning as a, as a girl, 
young teenager, probably about 13 years old. I was swimming out in Lake Michigan, which is where I grew up in the lake. That's where we went swimming. Like we were members of the polar bear club because it was never got very warm at all. But I was out there swimming with my girlfriend and um, the tide came in. Yes, there is a tide in Lake Michigan. And um, I started to drown and she did too. And the life gave her, life gave her, life saver, lifeguard. I knew there was a G and the lifeguard came out to rescue us and I was fighting him. They say that's very typical of a drowning person to fight off the one who's coming to save them. And that's what these Jews were doing. They're fighting off their, their great lifesaver, the lifeguard. They're fighting him off. Sad. Well, I was saved, by the way. <laughs> you knew that. All right, let's look at the Jews' charge and Abraham's rejoicing in verses 52 to 58. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God, yet ye have not known him. Now, the Greek word for known there is... um, a word that means you have not experientially known him. You do not know him by effort. You know, first of all, we know God experientially when we are saved. And then we continue to know him more and more by effort. Isn't that what you're doing in this Bible study? We're getting to know, draw an eye unto God and he will draw an eye unto you. We're getting to know him better and better by effort. Well, this word means you have not known him experientially and you're not even trying to know him by effort. It's a different word than the next know where he says, but I know him. That's a different Greek word and it means I know him fully, completely, without any effort at all. Why did Jesus Christ know God so completely and fully without any effort at all? Because he was God. He's one with God. Two different Greek words. He says... Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. You see, when he said, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. His saying is really whose saying? God's saying. I keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou thou seen Abraham? And here, wow, this is quite a statement. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. No hiding what he was saying there, is there? (laughs) He was really answering their question back in another verse, uh, end of verse 53, when they said, Who makest thou thyself? He answered it. I am. All right, rather than uh, politely asking Jesus for an explanation of what he had just said there in verse 51, which is what you would expect of people who sincerely believed him and wanted to better understand the truth and and the light of what he was trying to teach them, right? If they really believed him, I mean, they did believe him mentally, but they weren't going to believe him in their hearts. But they, if they had, they would have said, like disciples, we don't understand, Lord, explain it to us. But instead of doing that, what do they say? 
Now we know thou hast a devil, which tells me that the first time they accused him of having a devil, they didn't really know. Now they say, now we know. First time they must have said, ah, you must have a devil. You must have a devil to say that we are the children of the devil and to say that we don't even know God. Now they're certain all of a sudden. Now they're certain that he has a devil. And if you think about it, that means the first time they accused him of having a devil publicly, they were, they were lying. They were trying to discredit him publicly because they didn't really know he had a devil. But they were still saying that in front of all those people. Remember, he's in the court of the women in front of thousands of people. They're saying, you have a devil. That's, that's not right, is it? If you don't know for sure somebody has a devil. Do you get me? Can you follow me? I, sometimes I can't even follow myself. We're still on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a very long day, very long day. And it doesn't stop here because when we get into chapter 9, he heals the man born blind. So it continues. This eighth day is a very long day, the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So these guys were really proving to be liars because when they called him, they said he was demon-possessed. They didn't know, so they were liars. They, they no more thought that he had a devil than they really believed he was a Samaritan. They knew he wasn't a Samaritan. They were liars. If they did think he had a devil, you know what they should have done? Weren't they supposed to be the righteous guys? They, some of the Pharisees, cast out demons of people. This said it's elsewhere in the scripture. They should have exercised the demon out of him. That was their job as spiritual leaders. If they really believed he had a devil, wouldn't they have been able to accuse him back in verse 46 when he says, can any of you convince me of sin? And they couldn't come up with anything in his life or his character. If he really possessed a devil, would that be true of someone a demon possessed? As I said, a demon possessed person has to open themselves up for demon possession by doing something in the occult or, you know, wicked. They open themselves up. So that would have meant he was a sinner if he was demon-possessed. And how, how did demon-possessed people behave? I shouldn't say did. There are people in the world today who are demon-possessed. We've seen, like think of the um, man at Gadara, the, the Gadarian demoniac. They're violent. They hurt themselves. They try to hurt other people. They're full of anger and bitterness. They're not in their right mind. They run around naked. I mean, just think of some of the demons. The, the, the boy who was casting himself in the fire and water, trying to drown himself. And Did he behave like a demon-possessed person? No, absolutely not. He was calm and dignified in his right mind. No, no one infuriated them more because he was so sound and whole and holy. <laughs> so they, they, they didn't really believe this. They were liars. <clears throat> they willfully also misunderstood the fact that he was speaking spiritually when he said, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. He wasn't speaking physically. See, they come back and they say, what do you mean by that? The man, keep your word, he'll never see death. If ever there was someone who kept God's word, as they knew he was saying, it would be Abraham or the Old Testament prophets, and they're all dead. They've all died. But the Lord wasn't talking. And they knew this. They weren't that dumb. They knew he was speaking about the soul of the believer and not the body. It's the soul of the believer that never dies, never experiences the second death. Of course, the body only experiences temporal death, and it too one day will be raised new and glorified. 
But, and also the soul of every person really lives on. Even unbelievers' souls live on, don't they? But where that life will continue is based on faith in Christ's word and what he has revealed to us about God and about the way to spend eternity with God. So in verse 53, the Jews asked two questions. Number one question was, did he think that he was greater than Abraham? And did he think he was greater than all the prophets? And um, then he, the second question is, who do you, basically, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Now, if they could have answered those two questions, all their other questions would have ended, right? Because this is the crux of the whole matter. Is Jesus greater than Abraham and all the prophets? If they could have answered who he was making himself out to be, then, you know, in other words, if they were willing to acknowledge his deity, then they would stop being scandalized by everything he said and did. It would settle the issue. Once a person understands the deity of Christ, everything falls into place in life. Everything falls into place. You can listen to the news and you can know what's right and what's wrong. You don't have to sit there and say, hmm, that sounds good. Hmm, that's a good opinion. You know what's right and what's wrong. You know why you're here. You know where you came from and you know where you're going. That settles it. Well, what about their first question? Was he greater than Abraham? Was he greater than the prophets? Let's look at the scripture and see if he was. Let's see what the scripture says who he was greater than and what he was greater than. All right, back in uh, John chapter 4, we've already talked about John chapter 4. When you think of John chapter 4, automatically think of the Samaritan, the woman at the well chapter, all right? In that chapter, the woman at the well had asked Jesus if he thought he was greater than Jacob. Jacob was one of the patriarchs, okay? Because he had offered her a drink of living water. She was standing at Jacob's well. And she said, you think you're greater than Jacob? that you can give me not just this kind of water, you can give me living water. And by his answer, he was telling her, yes, I am greater than Jacob. Because you know what his answer was? Whosoever shall drink drink of this water shall thirst again, meaning Jacob's water. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. So he was saying, yes, I am greater than Jacob. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob was the one whose name was changed to Israel. So he said, yes, I'm greater than Jacob. Then in Matthew 12, 41, he declared himself to be greater than Jonah. Okay, that's not too hard to imagine. <laughs> he wasn't exactly an obedient prophet. But do you know that Jonah arose from the belly of a whale? Can you imagine being in a belly's, uh, belly's whale? A whale's belly for three days and three nights. He resurrected from the dead. I really believe he was dead in the whale. And um, then Jonah went on to preach the greatest revival this world has ever seen. He preached, he didn't want to, but he preached to those uh, Caesarians, Assyrians, <laughs> and the whole city of Nineveh repented in ashes and, and believed his message. That's millions of people. So he was a great preacher. Reluctant, but a great preacher. And then in Matthew, so he's greater than Jonah. Matthew 12, 42, he himself, Jesus, declared to be greater than Solomon. And Solomon was said to be the wisest man who had ever lived. Yet Jesus was greater than Solomon. John 1, 27, John the Baptist declared himself to not even be worthy to unlatch the Lord's sandals. And yet 
Jesus had said of the Baptist that he, there was none greater than John born of women. No greater prophet born of, of women to his day. And yet John said, I must decrease and he must increase. He said he is preferred above me. He knew that Jesus was greater than him. And then Matthew twelve six, Jesus declared himself to be greater than the temple. Wow, the temple of God? Yes, greater than the temple. The temple was all about him, wasn't it? It was a picture of him. And then in Hebrews 1, 4, Jesus is said to be better than the holy angels. Better than the temple, better than the holy angels. And in Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12, he's said to be better than the high priest. And all the priests scooped together. And in our passage here in verse 58, he's declaring himself to be greater than Abraham. You know, to make the statement before Abraham was, I am, makes it pretty clear. He's declaring to be greater than Abraham. So who alone could be said, oh, I forgot one. What about Moses? Somebody might say, well, Moses, Moses, you know, Moses, he's great. He's the greatest. He said of, that Moses wrote about him in Matthew 12. Moses, the first five books of the Bible were written about who? Jesus. Thus, Jesus is greater than the one who wrote about him. So who could be greater than Abraham, the father of the faith? Who could be greater than Jacob, the, um, the, the father of Israel? Who could be greater than Solomon, the wisest king? Who could be greater than Jonah, the resurrected preacher? Who could be greater than John the Baptist, of, of whom it was said no human was greater to his day? Who could be greater than the temple? Who could be greater than the holy angels? Who could be greater than the high priests and all the other priests scooped together? You know what? The answer is Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name. There's only one answer, and it is also the answer to the Jews' second question. Who makest thou self to be? Who do you think you are, Jesus? I'll tell you who I am. I am. <laughs> I am that I am. Uh, so to answer their questions, so verse 53, he, uh, Jesus went on to say, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me. You see, there is a fame which is self-sought and self-generated and self-proclaimed. And there's a lot of people in the world all busy in their lives trying to get that kind of fame. But it, you know what? It's only temporal and it's transient. It's only in this life and it's quickly passing away. And it really kind of repulses people when you try to honor yourself and build up yourself and make a name for yourself. If they have any discernment at all, it repulses people. But then there is an honor that only comes from God. And you know what? It's eternal. Which one would you rather have? <laughs> Which one would you rather have? To honor is to do something or speak of a person to evidence not only our own esteem of that one, but to lead others to esteem that person as well. God's esteem of his son is seen not only by his love for his son and his admiration for his son, but also by his desire to make others love and honor and glorify his son. Arthur Pink wrote this. He said, quote, God honored his son at his birth 
by sending angels to herald him as Christ the Lord. God honored his son by directing wise men from the east to come and worship the young king. He honored him at his baptism by proclaiming him his beloved son. He honored him in death by not suffering his body to see corruption. He honored him at his ascension when he exalted him to his own right hand. He will honor him in the final judgment when every knee even unbelievers, every knee will be made to bow before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And throughout eternity, he shall be honored by a redeemed people who shall esteem him the fairest of 10,000 to their souls. Amen. If the, Lord, if the Jews truly loved God, then they would honor the one who God honored. But instead, they dishonored the very one God esteemed higher than his own holy angels, higher than the temple, higher than any man who had ever lived. They dishonored the very one God had sent to them to reveal himself. They dishonored the very one who could offer them eternal life and the very one who would return in his former glory in heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. So to show their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, this is in verses 54 and 55, Ye say that he is your God, yet ye have not known him. I talked about that Greek word, no. But I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. See, he wasn't the liar. They were. They were the liars. They said they knew God, but they really dishonored and insulted and wanted to murder God's son. So they didn't know God. So he wasn't, Jesus wasn't the one who was self-deceived. He did know God. They thought they did. Now, because Jesus is himself God, there's one thing he could not do. You know, there are some things God cannot do. What is one? He, he cannot sin. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. Because Jesus is God, he had to tell them the truth. He had to. If he wanted to save his own neck, if he was just interested in saving his own life, because he knew these, one, these were the ones who wanted to kill him and eventually would, then he could have lied, but of course he couldn't because he's God. But if he wasn't God, he could have told them that he didn't know God. They were the ones that knew God. Um, he could have told them, you're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. There's different ways to God. We'll all get there eventually. You know, he could have lied to them. He could, have, he could have stroked their egos. He could have done all that. But he had come to declare God's God's saying, God's word to the world, and no matter what men thought of it, he would be true to that cause. He would speak the truth always. One thing you can count on with Jesus is that he always speaks the truth. Furthermore, he would keep God's word no matter what. He would keep God's word. I mean, work. No word. Well, both. <laughs> God's word and God, his work. And for him, part of that word included the work of being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So that's true for us. If we really know God, if we really know him experientially because we've been born again and positionally we know God and we're in righteous standing with God and we, then we want to continue on to know God, what will we evidence? A willingness to do his word and his work, no matter what. doesn't matter what the rest of the world out there says about us. 
or how they slur us or what they want to do to us. And it may get to the point where they want to do something to us. I was crying the other night at church because the speaker was fantastic, but he was talking about how soon the church is going to face persecution here in America. It's right around the corner. And I, I was burdened for my children. I don't care about myself anymore. I'm too old to care. I want to exit, you know. But I, I think about what my children and my precious little grandchildren are going to see and what they're going to what they're going to have to face. We've got to, we've got to, while we're here, we've got to do all we can, ladies, to strengthen them because they're not going to be able to walk the line anymore. It's going to be one side or the other. And they're going to have to be willing to stand up for what they believe in face of persecution. We're living in perilous times. We're living in exciting times, too, because the Lord is coming soon. Even so, come quickly, please, Lord. (laughs) Continuing on, the Lord, um, we find... Return to the subject of Abraham. All right, they had the Jews had mentioned Abraham three times already in this sermon, and now he um, talks about Abraham. Okay, you guys want to talk about Abraham so much, and he's going to give them another shocking statement. He says, basically, he's answering their question: Are you greater than our father Abraham? And by his answer, he says, Yes. Here's what he says. Abraham, you want to keep calling him your father, okay, he is your physical father, he's not really your spiritual father, but your father Abraham, rejoice to see my day. And I love these next words, and saw it, and was glad. Now again, I wish you could see this in the Greek, because the word rejoiced and the word glad literally jump off the page. I should say they leap off the page, because the word for rejoiced, Abraham rejoiced to see my day means he leapt with joy. Can you see old... I think when he had this leaping experience of joy was when he had the angel of the Lord stop him from sacrificing his son, and there was... saw the ram caught in the thickets by his horns. But he was 130 years old at that day, and I could just see him... Can't you see him jumping up and kicking his heels, old Abraham? It's kind of reminded me of John the Baptist when he was in his mother's womb and he heard Mary's voice and he leapt with joy in the womb. That's what it means. He literally leapt with, with joy when he saw Christ's day and he saw it and he was exceedingly glad. The Greek emphasizes how happy he was. He, uh, Abraham looked forward to, with exceeding joy, he looked forward to seeing the object of his desires. And that one was the promised seed of the woman, the Savior. And he exalted in his vision of him. When he finally saw him, he exalted. He was so happy. And what a contrast. Think of the contrast that is. Abraham's rejoicing over Christ in comparison with the Jews' anger at him. I mean, Abraham saw the Lord's day from afar off. He existed 2,000 years before Christ was even born. And, and through, it was through spiritual perception that he saw the Lord's day. He saw Christ in picture, in types. And he saw Christ in promise, the promises God had given to him. And once he saw Christ in pre-incarnation. But these Jews were privileged to stand right there in the temple speaking face-to-face with the incarnate Son of God. And yet, are they leaping for joy? They're lusting in jealousy is what they're doing. They're, they're angry. They're beyond angry. They're going to pick up stones and want to kill him in a few minutes. 
What a contrast. Weren't they really showing that they were not the spiritual children of Abraham at all? Not at all. Well, I think that it's very safe to say, Abraham, this is my favorite part of the lesson, that Abraham understood quite a bit about the promised seed of the woman. Remember? You have to go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. If that verse isn't highlighted in your Bible, it needs to be. Genesis 3.15 is the proto-evangelium, first time the gospel message is given. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised them a Savior who would crush Satan's head and redeem men from their sinful condition and give them eternal life. Well, through that promise and through God's promises to Abraham, starting with the fact that God told Abraham that all nations, A-L-L, all nations would be blessed through his seed, that's in Genesis 12, 3, Abraham understood that. He understood that all the, that the, the coming promised seed of the woman was for all nations, for all men. You see, he understood what the Jews didn't. And you know, Abraham was really a Gentile. <laughs> I always think that's funny. But uh, he was. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. There were no Hebrews. There, were no, there was no Jewish nation. Abraham was a, a, a Gentile. He understood that all nations would be blessed by the coming Savior who would be for the whole world and that it would be through his seed. And Galatians 3.16 tells us that that seed, yes, it was Isaac, his one and only true seed because Ishmael was born of fornication, but uh, that also that seed with a capital S was Christ, the promised seed, capital S, of the woman. So he, he understood also that... Um, he, you know, another promise was that he would be the father of many kings and nations. And he understood that God's covenant with him was an everlasting covenant regarding the land and the promise of the seed. That was an everlasting covenant. It was never going to end. It was unconditional. You know, that's why one day Israel will, he will fulfill his promises to Israel. Galatians 3.8. Did you ever see this before? Galatians 3.8. I just talked about Galatians 3.16, where the seed was Christ when Abraham got that promise. But that the gospel was preached unto Abraham. Galatians 3.8 tells us the gospel was preached to Abraham. Now, how much of that he understood, I am not real sure. I think he understood a whole lot more than we maybe think he did. You know what the gospel message is. The gospel is the good news of the coming Redeemer. He understood, he was pre I don't know when he was preached the gospel. I do know when he heard that all nations through him would be blessed because the Savior would come through him, that that was part of the good news. Maybe, now this is pure speculation, but maybe Melchizedek, that mysterious character who was not only the king of Salem, which means he was the king of peace, but he was also the priest of the Most High God, and no man served both offices. Keast uh, and Preen. <laughs> I couldn't do that if I wanted to. Priest and king. And you know, Melchizedek appeared from nowhere, and he sort of disappeared, and he was a very strange character. Maybe he filled him in on some of the gospel. Maybe the pre-incarnate Christ himself filled him in on some of the gospel when he came to visit Abraham 
with two holy angels on that day when he told Abraham that in a year's time his wife Sarah would bear him a son who was to be the promised uh, one who would carry on the messianic lineage and what did Sarah do can you imagine being 89 years old and hearing when you're 90 you're going to have a baby and you, yeah she laughed and that's why Isaac is named laughter but uh, maybe the pre-incarnate Christ filled him in and maybe Abraham picked up on the fact because of Isaac's miraculous conception after all Isaac was born to two reproductively dead people I mean you get a 90 year old woman and a 100 year old man together and they don't normally have babies this was a miraculous conception especially since Sarah was not only postmenopausal, but she had been barren even when she could give could have given birth to children So maybe through the miraculous conception of Isaac, Abraham saw ahead to the miraculous conception of the coming capital seed, the Savior. And he could have picked up on that again from Genesis 3.15 because God promised the Savior would be the woman's seed. Guess what? Something supernatural about that because women do not have seed. Men have seed. Well, perhaps Abraham also began to have clear vision. Now, I want you to turn, if you will, to Genesis 22. It's going to go over a little bit here, I know, but this will be worth it. Maybe Abraham also had began to have clear vision of the necessity of the coming Redeemer's substitutionary sacrifice when he obeyed God by taking his beloved only begotten son Isaac to Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. Now, Mount Moriah is where he was told to go by God himself. In verse 2, you see it, of Genesis 22. And um, Mount Moriah was in the, the same mount as Calvary, where God sacrificed his own only begotten beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what Moriah means in the Hebrew? It means clear vision. This is perhaps where Abraham really got clear vision of the gospel message. Now, he would, of course, have known about all the previous pictures of the needful atonement for sin by a Savior, which were given, first of all, by God's provision of an innocent animal. I think it was a lamb whose blood he had to shed in order to cover Adam and Eve with the coats of uh, the skin. Skin. Um, And also furnished coats of skin for Adam and Eve. He had to shed innocent blood. So Abraham knew about that. He knew there had to be the Savior, something to do with the sinless sacrifice and the shedding of blood. And he would have picked up on that truth also from the fact that God accepted Abel's animal sacrifice, uh, animal substitute sacrifice, and whose blood he had to shed instead of accepting Cain's works sacrifice. And then Abraham, I believe, really got clear vision of the need for an atonement for sin by a Savior who needed to shed blood and die when 
God provided the ram substitute. A ram is a male lamb for Isaac. You know, in sacrificing Isaac, nothing would have been accomplished. Isaac's death and shed blood would have done no one any good because Isaac was born in sin, just like the rest of us. He inherited the Adamic sin nature. So Isaac needed to be covered by someone. And so God provided the, the ram to cover because a ram is innocent. It's an animal. It doesn't sin in order to cover Isaac's sin. And the ram was a picture of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at Genesis 22. And maybe as I go through it, I can explain more. Let's begin with... Um, Verse 2, it says, this is God speaking to Abraham. He says, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of clear vision, at Moriah, and offer him therefore a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. It's going to be the same place, I believe, with all my heart, that Jesus was offered up on the cross, Calvary. And uh, Abraham rose up, immediate obedience. He rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him. You know, there were two witnesses. Now, they weren't actually there because they were left at the foot of the mountain. But remember when Christ died, there were two witnesses on either side of him. Now, they didn't actually see what went on when the sky got dark and nobody could see their hand in front of them, but there were two, just like there were these two young men. And it says he took two of his young men and Isaac, his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, hmm, wonder why the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write that. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. Every time in the Old Testament it talks about somebody lifting up their eyes, they lift up to see something important. What did he see? The place afar off. What place? The place where God would send him, which is called the Mount of the Lord, the place of clear vision, the place where Jesus Christ would be sacrificed. And Abraham said unto his young men, Now here, you talk about faith. This is faith. He says, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad. And the, the Hebrew word for lad doesn't mean a little boy. He didn't have to be a little boy at all, like you see in the picture books. He was figuring out mathematically where this takes place in the book of Genesis, and he was a young man. I believe he was probably around 32 years of age. I and the lad will go yonder. And it's important, by the way, I think Moses was a southerner because he says we're going to go yonder. It was important for me to point out the fact of his age because as a young man, he could have easily resisted his father once he found out what was going on here, but he didn't. He willingly allowed his father to lay him on the wood of the altar. Okay, that's important. His daddy was about 130 years old, so you know he could have easily resisted him. All right, so he says, go yonder and worship. That's the first time the word worship appears in the Bible. You know what worship is? It's being obedient to God. They're going to be, he's going to be totally obedient to God's command, even though he didn't understand it. Isaac didn't understand it. Both of them were going to be obedient. When we're obedient to God, we're worshiping him. So we're going to go yonder and worship, and what? Come again to you. Abraham was saying here, I and the lad are going to go worship, and I and the, la and the lad are going to come back unto you. That's faith. And we'll talk about what Hebrews tells us later, that he believed God would even resurrect him from the dead if he had to. All right, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. Didn't Jesus also carry his own cross beam? 
to the place of sacrifice, just like Isaac. And he took the fire in his hand, fire speaks of judgment, and the ni- and a knife, and they went both of them together. I love that. God the fu- Son and God the Father were united together in what went on on the cross. I mean, you know, they had to be separated there for a while, but they were unified in one about the necessity of what they were doing. And Isaac spoke unto, spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he, Isaac, said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And here Abraham was so inspired to make this next statement. He said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So here we have it again. They went, both of them, together. Willingly, Isaac went. Isaac's faith was just as great as Abraham's, really, here. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son. Wasn't Jesus Christ bound to the wood of the cross? And laid him on the altar upon the wood. And and Isaac was totally silent, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He didn't say a word, did he? didn't say a word and Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son he was ready to do it he was ready to plunge the knife into the heart of his son and then burn him he was to be a burnt offering he was going to burn him and yet he believed God would raise him from the dead for those ashes that's faith I mean wow that's faith no wonder he's called the father of faith and don't you love this intervention God doesn't ask us to sacrifice our children oh no no it says and the angel of the lord called unto him out of heaven and said abraham abraham and he said here am i and he the angel of the lord said lay not thine hand upon the lad neither do thou anything unto him for now i know that thou fearest god seeing thou hast not withheld thy son thine only son from who me who is the angel of the lord the very one who asked abraham to sacrifice his son to test him to see if he was that obedient to his word and abraham again lifted up his eyes and whenever you look lift up your eyes in the old testament it's important first time he saw where the sacrifice would be and now what does he see the sacrifice he looked and behold behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns do you know what the horns of an animal signify strength and power jesus's own power held him in the thickets on the cross he could have called a legion of of angels down to he could have just come down from the cross himself in his own power it was his own power that kept him there stuck in the bushes stuck on the cross so that he would be the substitute for our sins Mm, beautiful and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son so for three days you know since when Abraham got the command to do what he had to do with Isaac until they got there and he put Isaac on the for those three days as we're told he was thinking Isaac is dead Isaac is dead and he rose from the dead when the angel of the Lord intervened on the third day you see the picture there? Um, 
So he understood. He understood a lot more than I think we give him credit to. For did did you know that Abraham actually believed, as I said, that God would raise Isaac back from the dead? Uh, why? Because he believed God's promise that through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Well, Isaac wasn't married at this point in time. Isaac had no children. So if God is going to fulfill his promise that through Isaac would come the promised Savior, that meant only one thing. God would have to raise Isaac back from the ashes. He'd have to. And we know this is what Abraham believed because it says so in Hebrews 11. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried or tested, offered up Isaac. And he that received the promises, that's Abraham, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting, this is Abraham accounting or figuring, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. From when also he received him in a figure. See, Abraham also understood that Isaac was a figure. He was an illustration. He was a picture of who? Of the coming Christ. You see the clear vision he had up there on Mount Moriah? We, um, because Abraham was so willing to be obedient to offer up his only beloved son, Isaac, even though he thought, is there a method in your madness here? Why would you do this? I waited a hundred years to have this son. He's not married yet, and now you're asking me to kill him? You know, but because he was so willing to obey, he grew in his understanding and in his knowledge of God. And that's what happens with us. As we obey, he gives us more understanding. So, And we see this spiritual growth taking place in Abraham by his answer to Isaac's question, Here's the fire, here's the wood, where's the lamb? In his answer, he, um, he, not, he, uh, he says, my son, notice all the words in this verse, my son, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. That's an inspired statement because it's really saying that God himself would be the lamb of provision for the sacrifice. So we see his growth in that statement. We also see his growth by the name he gave to that place after this whole incident was over. He actually gave God a new name. He called that place a new name for God, Jehovah Jireh. You know what Jehovah Jireh means? The Lord will provide, and it also can mean in Hebrew, the Lord will appear. The Lord will provide and the Lord will appear. And both Hebrew meanings <laughs> make sense here because uh, Genesis twenty two fourteen proceeds to tell us that it would be in this very mount of the Lord where Abraham had been told to take Isaac that it would be seen. Not only would the Lord provide the lamb in that mount of the Lord, but it, it would be seen in that mount of the Lord. And we say, what would be seen? Look at that. That's in verse 14. In the, the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. What shall be seen? God himself being the lamb. 
Hmm. Clear vision. Speaking of Abraham, as well as all of the Old Testament prophets, the the, uh, author of Hebrews said this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were persuaded of them and embraced them. You know, guys that lived many, many years before Christ was even was born were persuaded of the promises. They were not only persuaded, but they embraced them. And I thought about us, how we need to be persuaded about all the promises of his second coming. And not only be persuaded about them, but embrace them. Let's cling to them. Let's hold to them and say, even so, come quickly, because he is going to come. He is going to fulfill his promises. Well, the Jews were just as horrified. They were just, you can go back to John chapter 8. I'm just about through. Don't kill me yet. Um, They were just as horrified and scandalized by this latest bit of truth when he said, um, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad, and they were were scandalized. They said, uh, to me, this would be the worst slur of all. Okay, go ahead. Tell me I'm possessed by a demon. Tell me that I'm a Samaritan. But don't tell me I look like I'm 50 when I'm only 32. (laughs) They say, thou art not yet 50 years old. How old was Jesus? 30, early 30s. And they say, you're not even, hmm, 50 yet? (laughs) And hast thou seen Abraham? They They switched the words around, by the way. He said... Abraham rejoiced to see me. The emphasis is on him, Christ. And they say, you've seen Abraham? Like Abraham was the big deal to see. They always take everything and twist it the wrong way. All right, so so he comes back in verse 58, and this this is the climax of the whole light of the world sermon. He says, verily, verily, of a truth of a truth, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. You know what? If Jesus Christ was not the eternal, self-existent God, the I am that I am of Scripture, he was either the most insane person who has ever lived or the, the, the worst liar, the, great, the world's greatest liar. And yet, you know, you listen to the people in all different religions, and nobody really says that about Jesus. Even the Muslims think he's a prophet that will be buried next to Muhammad. Nobody really says that. Well, the Jews might say he was a liar. But, so this was the third time he had made this I am claim, but this was by far the greatest, and they didn't miss this one. They got this. How do we know we got it? Because of their response, what did they do? Look at verse 59. They they go from name-calling to stone-throwing. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. We can be sure that the devil himself, we talked a lot about the devil in this chapter, we can be sure the devil was behind this. These Jews, they'd had enough. They weren't, they weren't going to dialogue anymore with him. So they picked up heavy stones, it says in the Greek, to cast at him. But again, he's proving who he is. How in the world did he hid him, hide himself from them? They, had, they were furious. They had every intention of killing him, and they had heavy stones with which to do it. And yet he hid himself and passed through the very midst of them. Somehow they didn't see him. I don't know how he did it. I know what he could have done. He passed by. I know what he could have done. He could have turned all of them to stone. Couldn't he? It's a shame he didn't. We're hoping some of them eventually got saved. 
But if he had done that, he would be showing he was a sinner like you and me. You know, it's interesting. Go back and look how, the, how this long chapter began. Do you remember? I know it seems like it was 100 years ago. This chapter began with, um, with Jews bringing an adulterous woman to Jesus. And she had been caught in the very act of her sin. She was definitely a sinner. Yet he interceded for her, Jesus did, by saying, He that is without sin, let him you know, first cast a stone at her. And now this same chapter ends by sinners, actually very religious men, picking up stones to cast at the only sinless man. They couldn't name any sin legitimate sin when he challenged them to do so. So here they are wanting to cast stones at the only sinless man who has ever, ever existed. You see, these Jewish religious leaders were going to give Jesus the very death from which he had saved the woman. Isn't it interesting how it all ties together? And he hid himself, went out from the temple. It was another one of those very sad days for Israel. He left the, the light receded from the temple but you know what? Instead of being focused on his own pain, don't you think it would be painful to go through what he just went through? Not only did they slur him and say he was demon-possessed and disbelieve what he said, and he, I would have gotten so frustrated. I would have wanted to turn them into stone probably by that time. But instead of focusing on his own pain and his own hurt and his own rejection, you know what he does? Look at verse 9. I mean, chapter 9, verse 1, you've already closed your Bibles. But it says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. He focuses immediately on someone else who has pain. His compassion is immediately at work. And he is about to, to illustrate all the truths he had just spoken in this Light of the World sermon with this man who had been born blind. You see, the man had been born blind for this very moment in time. This was a divine appointment because he was going to give one who had been born in darkness light. Not only physical light, but spiritual light. And I can't wait till we get to this lesson. This is next. So let's pray. Father God, I pray that your spirit will use your word as it has been revealed to us here this day to convict any yet perhaps unbelieving heart in our midst of her desperate need for true emancipation in Jesus Christ, who alone can set us free from sin and guilt and despair and from eternal separation from you. Thank you, Lord, that God yourself, you became the lamb substitute for us. You are indeed Jehovah Jireh, and we love you. Amen.